Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another episode, we'll withhold judgment on whether it's exciting till later, episode of The Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, and um, this week's episode is brought to us by the wonderful people at Podium and by quote-unquote conservative Bill Crystal. I'm sorry, that's an inside joke because there's some people who are writing really stupid things about Bill. Um, the other sponsor is Conversations with Bill Crystal. We'll talk more about that in a little bit as well. This is our last podcast before Thanksgiving, and uh, I don't know when we'll be back in the studio because um, I plan on having tryptophan poisoning. But we are excited to have in here an old friend of mine. You're officially, your writing name is James, right? But I've always known you as Jamie. Yeah, okay. that's correct. Okay. So with, with we'll go with Jamie because I'll forget to say James. Jamie Kerchick of the Brookings Institution, which, you know, there's a certain Coke versus Pepsi thing going on with the Brookings Institution. We try to keep you guys at arm's length, <laughs> but uh, we'll make an exception for you. Uh, welcome aboard. Thank you, Jonah. We wanted to have you on for your book, The End of Europe, um, which we didn't get a chance to, but we are going to talk about that in a little bit. But what sparked the idea in my head was, uh, why don't, before we get into it, why don't we, so you you work for some very toothy institution within the Brookings Institution or center or whatever. A center on the United States and Europe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So center on the good guys. Yeah. Okay. And then you are a correspondent or a contributing editor for Tablet? I'm a columnist for Tablet. Correspondent for the Daily Beast. Okay. And write for a bunch of other places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And including National Review. Including National Review. You were frequently in National Review and, and in commentary as well, that that wonderful niche publication. <laughs> and uh, But what, what brought me to mind to bring this, to have you in the last minute, was I read your piece in Tablet about George Soros, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And it confirmed a lot of things that I have... Uh, the reason I could tell it was so brilliant is it confirmed things I already believe to be true. <laughs> I'm glad I can. I'm glad I can serve that role in your life. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and for listeners who are wondering why I am particularly cotton mouth this morning, it's because uh, I was outrageously overserved at the uh, Union League Club in Philadelphia last night. We can talk about more about that later. But um, why don't you just sort of give the broad outline of your case about the your argument about Soros? Uh, we'll link to the article in the show notes and all that stuff, and then we'll get into it. Well, I began writing, working on this piece over the summer 
when there was a big New York Times cover story about George Soros and basically, um, you know, his role as being a supporter of liberal democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. And basically they were checking in on on him. Right. Amidst this rising global kind of right-wing populism and whatnot. Because he's the Pope of the globalists. Sort of, yes. Yeah. And I kind of was doing some research and kind of sitting on the piece for a while. And then when the whole Kavanaugh debacle happened, you heard the whole uh, debate over whether or not George Soros was paying protesters. And when when this accusation was made... Many people on the left almost uniformly got rose up and said this is anti-Semitic because you're playing into this um, conspiracy theory about George Soros. And so I, you know, I have very conflicted feelings about George Soros because, mm-hmm. which comes across in the article. Yeah, and you know, so I, I spent several years living in Europe, uh, in particular covering Central and Eastern Europe, the former Soviet space, working for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And as I explained in the piece, you know, everywhere I went, I came across the good works of George Soros. And I mean right. that, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of center-right politically, but these are politically neutral things that conservatives would appreciate, supporting free markets, liberal values, pluralism. Um, you know, he was an early supporter of, of anti-communist movements in the Eastern Bloc. He, he, he did very good work in that right. part of the world and still is. Frankly, I, I, I know there are conservatives who would argue with me about this, but I think he still is. In the United, in the United States, I think it's a different picture. Mm. He's become a very hardcore partisan Democratic Party activist on the left wing of the Democratic Party. And I think that you know, there's nuance to George Soros. He's a complicated person. And it seems like today, as with everything today, you either have to be on Team A or Team B. Right. And I'm not on a team. You're not on, on a on a team either. Right. And I think George Soros, you know, so either either Soros is this kind of global puppet master controlling everything, and he's this evil satanic figure, or if you're on the left, he's this blameless, mm. you know, flawless human being who's only doing good things. And anyone who criticizes him is a right wing conspiracy theorist and anti semite. You know, it's like you know what? There's actually, you know, truth to the to the to the liberal left wing mm. um, presentation of George Soros, and there's some truth to the right wing critique of him. I think he's a complicated person, right. like most people in the world are, are complicated people. And I really try to bring that out in the uh, piece. Yeah. So one of the things, I, again, I liked about the piece, was it's a brilliant confirmation of theories I only half held. But as you know, I'm a, something of an amateur student of this thing called fascism, right? And one of, the, one of my theories about Soros, I'm, let me back into it a different way. I used to be on Glenn Beck's Fox show a lot. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning... Glenn was, I thought, great because he brought this sort of autodidact enthusiasm to things. And if he didn't know it before, he assumed his viewers didn't know it. And he could bring this sort of like thrill discovery of the new stuff. The problem was is he – and I, I'm a big fan of Glenn's. I like Glenn. But he got – I think he got sort of out over his skis because there were some things he didn't know. And then didn't – because he didn't know them, he didn't know how to put them in the right context. I remember him going off and I having to sort of talk him off a ledge – when like Julian Bond or one of those people uh, admitted, quote unquote, admitted that Martin Luther King was a socialist, which is something people knew. He was a social Democrat, yes. right? You know, big, 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 but Glenn was at the time on this big kick about like the Ukrainian Holocaust and how evil Stalin was. And I was just like, you know, they're different things, you know. Um, and so when he on his Fox show did the stuff about George Soros, what bothered me was – he would quote stuff Soros had said or his groups had said about East European countries mm. as and how to disrupt their political systems because these were then communist countries, right? And he said, okay, now Soros is bringing this right. stuff to America. 
And I always thought that was a little overwrought, but there was a kernel of truth to it, which is that I think that Soros has – and you can find it, it sort of screams out in parts of your piece. He's never really internalized the basic fact that conservatives in the sort of mainline Anglo-American sort of Buckleyite conservative tradition are not blood and soil right-wingers right like you have in Europe. Yeah. And so when he hears Bush say stuff during the Gulf exactly. War, right. he hears – it goes through his prism and he hears it in a German accent. Right. And it was just a complete confusion, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it, it makes sense that he does good things in Europe because that stuff – the stuff he was doing – was applicable and this Europe. pertains to the critique of him. So right. when Viktor Orban, who is a right-wing nationalist pr prime minister of Hungary, uh, who started out as a good guy, who started, who actually got a Soros grant to right. go study at Oxford, which is the irony. Okay, but when Viktor Orban, who over the past eight years has been engaged in a full-scale attempt to rewrite Hungary's complicity in the Holocaust, which includes building these museums, putting up statues, rewriting history textbooks. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a very comprehensive campaign here, which is anti-Semitic. When that government of Viktor Orban decides to make George Soros the sort of Emmanuel Goldstein, okay, right. and put and literally laminate his face on the floor of the trams in Budapest so people <laughs> step on them, okay, and blames him for every problem that the yeah. country is facing, that's anti-Semitic yeah, because yeah. it's Hungary and it's a country that sent over half a million Jews right. to the death camps, okay? But when... Chuck Grassley is asked on Fox News, right. is George Soros paying the protesters who are um, screaming at Jeff Flake in an elevator? And Chuck Grassley says, oh, I don't know. I think so. Maybe. Right. That's not anti-Semitic. Right. Right. And this is, a, this is a distinction that you would think that people in the media would be able to appreciate. But right. because everything is so tribal and polarized right. now, you can't criticize George Soros without being lumped in with Viktor Orban in the Law and Justice Party in Poland and all the kind of, you know, creepy right-wing nationalists in Eastern Europe. Yeah. No, it's funny. I got into a thing on Twitter, I don't know, a year ago where all of these like left-wing egghead types were insisting that any criticism of the Frankfurt School Marxists was anti-Semitic. <laughs> and I was like, well, come on. Wait a second. You, right. you know, you can't have this cloak <laughs> of yeah. Jewishness right. that prevents, you know, when you're when you advocating for the repeal of democracy and all this right. kind of stuff, right. you can't then just cry anti-Semite if someone engages their argument seriously. Well, and the know? other irony here, and I don't want to sound like I'm doing whataboutism, but the oh. other irony is that all these people crying anti-Semitism, including George Soros himself, right. don't particularly care about anti-Semitism in general. Certainly not when it comes from, say, I don't know, Jeremy Corbyn of the Labor Party right, right. or anyone on the left, Linda Sarsour, Louis Farrakhan, right. any sort of Muslim figure, they're, they're, they're nowhere to be found. Yeah. But when it comes to George Soros, who, as I also get into the piece, has a very bizarre and, and, and conflicted relationship to his own Jewish background, by the right. way. Right. You know, he's, he's, yeah, I didn't know the Esperanto stuff. Why don't you explain some of that? I love that. His father was uh, a real sort of uh, evangelist, proselytizer for uh -huh. Esperanto. And so... For the for listeners who don't know, Esperanto was this really pie-eyed, utopian idea of replacing... All of these ancient, out, outdated languages with a made-up, you know, might as well have been Klingon, right? Well, and Soros's own last Soros is a is a de-Judaized form, right. of Schwartz, right? And Soros means to soar mm -hmm. in Esperanto, and so yeah, I mean, so Soros definitely, you know, I, the whole globalist term is a very weighted one, but yes, I mean, yeah. I, I think he would he would he would admit that he is someone who 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 looks at himself as a, as a cosmopolitan, as someone who has sort of you know de deracinated, he has right. sort of emancipated himself from the ethnic tribal tribalism of, of Jewishness and Judaism. He's spoken about this quite openly in the past. Now, you know, obviously that doesn't 
mean that um, I mean no one should be the victim of anti-Semitic attacks, even the most self-hating sure. Jew. Right. Um, but it does, I think, sort of complicate this whole question about Soros and and, and, and the question of anti-Semitism, and it's one that should be, you know, we should be able to talk about at least. Yeah, because yeah, it's funny. It's like if only the Koch brothers were Jewish. Right. We could play the exact yes. same. The totally. octopus. Right. I mean, the octopus exactly. imagery right. is classic right. anti-Semitism yes. in, in Germany and right. in Europe, you know. Um, but damn it, they're Teutons or whatever. Soros has given 16 times as much money to philanthropy and political causes. Yeah. That's, that's the New York Times. Yeah. He's given $32 billion over the course of his life, whereas the Cokes have only given $2 billion. Cheapskates. <laughs> um, and those of you in the Coke world, I was being sarcastic. You know, keep the spigots open. <laughs> um, uh, just kidding. I don't take any Coke money. Um, but make me an offer. Um, and so anyway, um, um, so let's talk about uh, – we can come back to Soros in a bit. But um, this this point that you make about how the same people who want to cry anti-Semitism when Chuck Grassley does whatever right. uh, won't call out Linda Sarsour and all these people – is it is it cynicism? Is it intersectionality? What 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 do you think is the driving dynamic there? I think partly it's cynicism. People are always loath to criticize their own side, but there is a, a question here of of did you say intersectionality, which is yeah. this genuine belief? I think that you know if someone comes from a supposedly oppressed or uh, you know underprivileged, marginalized community. Mm. That they therefore need to be held to a different standard right. than other people, and so I mean, you actually had this. You know, M- Melissa Harris Perry, the former MSNBC host, was directly asked about Louis Farrakhan's anti-Semitism, and she said, "Well, Louis Farrakhan doesn't have any power. Donald Trump has power. Donald Trump literally believes that Jewish people have no humanity." Is what she said. Which I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but I I don't think that that's true about Donald Trump. Okay. But, you know, Louis Farrakhan has no power. You know what? Louis Farrakhan has tens of thousands of followers. Right. And I think what we've seen with the shooting in, you know, in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago, it just takes one deranged individual hearing this stuff to go off and kill people. And I absolutely think that Louis Farrakhan is a destructive person. Why does it matter if he's not an elected official? I mean, as we saw a couple of months ago, there was a photo of him meeting Barack Obama a couple of years ago right. that didn't surface. He certainly has... Um, connections and friendly relationships with several people in the Congressional Black Caucus. But this is all irrelevant. I mean, the man is a is Hitlerian in his rhetoric right. and should be held to account for it. And I think that if you, you know, if, if, if you really believe that, that anti-Semitism is a, is a cancer, then you should be willing to call it out rather easily wherever you see it. And it shouldn't matter who's espousing it. But well, this applies to everything. It applies to any sort of Hatred or bigotry, but it's also it's funny because there's a this not to get all postmodern, but the defense of not calling him out because he has no power is a self-negating assertion because he clearly has power. He has there's something about him that makes him makes it difficult for people to denounce his anti-Semitism, right? right? I mean, right. he has some some power over people who otherwise won't tell the truth. Well, you know what? Because they the people often when they won't denounce him. They'll simultaneously say, "But look at all the gun, uh, all the good he's done." Right. In Chicago, in these poor communities, right, or for ex-prisoners, you know, his prison ministries and whatnot. Um, so they're simultaneously acknowledging that he does have some power, right? right he's right. doing some good, but there's also some bad. Yeah, but that's also, but that is an argument. You, that is a classic defense of 
let's leave the word, fascist word out of it. That is a classic defense. He makes the trains run on time, right? Yeah, or, or like Hamas. They right, do yes, social work. Right, and look at right, it, you know, right. the, the infrastructure they provide that Israel won't, blah, 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 you know? Which I never understand because it's like, you know what? Why can't you just do the prison ministry stuff without calling Jews termites? Right. It's not that difficult. Yeah. I manage. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> or even with Trump, you know, I'll say that like, my, yes, Trump is doing some things I like. I'm sure he's doing some things you like. Does he have to also go out and scapegoat minorities and demonize immigrants? Like, right. Why is that... Can't he just do the good stuff? Right. It shouldn't be that difficult not to be a demagogue. Right. He's doing it for a reason. Right. Same thing with Farrakhan. Like, he, he's consciously choosing to go up and give a speech where he's calling Jews termites. Right. And praising Hitler. Yeah. That's part of the package. Right. That's right. It actually, it calls back to a time, um, you know, one of my minor intellectual obsessions is the way that Father Coughlin is remembered. Mm. Um and is he was he actually a good guy you're trying to tell no he was a horrible dude (laughs) but the thing was he was you know he's he's remembered as the right-wing radio priest right right and the thing is and i highly recommend he's a democrat well he he supported roosevelt in 32 called it he said that it was roosevelt or ruin and the new deal was christ's deal Hmm. and um he was anti-semitic then but no one cared right and it was only when he broke with FDR, and he broke with FDR to FDR's left. He created the National Union of Social Justice, which was further to the left of the New Deal. He railed against the globalists of the age, which was had a very Jewish patina mm-hmm. to it even then. And then all of a sudden, you know, prior to that, Father uh, John Ryan, the leading Catholic liberal intellectual in America, said that, you know, Father Coughlin's on the side of the angels. That was the famous quote. And it was only when he broke with FDR that he gets called right wing, and when it's, and that is only when people noticed his anti-Semitism, which heated up a bit by then. But um, there is this—I mean, the, the, the capacity for people to rationalize people within their own coalition mm. for this kind of stuff is always sort of fascinating to me. And you write a lot about that in in the End of Europe. It's cool. We have the author of Suicide of the West and the End of Europe here. It's a <laughs> It's a special edition of Take a Bath with a Toaster kind of podcast. <laughs> um, uh, why don't you talk for a minute about – why don't you explain what the um, the Red-Green Alliance is? Because it's a perfect example of this coalition kind of mentality kicking in. Yeah, it's this alliance between the far left and I would say the Muslim right, mm-hmm. sort of uh, Muslim f- um, extremists, Muslim fundamentalists. Right. Which I think is most apparent, I would say, really bet- in, in the form of Jeremy Corbyn. Right who is the leader of the British Labour Party. And if you're following events in Britain over the past couple of weeks, could could become the next prime minister if Brexit becomes the disaster that it's looking at yeah. is likely to be and there may be an, an election called. And it is this sort of, I, th- I, th- I think it's motivated by a belief by some on the left, obviously not all on the left, but on a particular form of the anti-imperialist left, which basically views the Muslim world, the Ummah, as the new proletariat. So right. basically, you know, communism, Marxism having you know, been been a failure, the sort of the, the, the class revolution having failed. There's now sort of a more kind of identity revolution with the supposed victims of imperialism um, now part of this sort of, you know, coalition of the oppressed. Mm. And so you see that in, in Britain with, in the form of Corbyn in, in the Labour Party. You see it in the French far left with Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's basically the – who's overtaken the, social, the Socialist Party. And he has some uh, similar affinities as well. It's mostly a, a Western European phenomenon 
Um, and but, it's been and it's been it's been visible, you know, since the '90s, since the collapse of communism. But really, you know, since 9/11 and and in the past couple of years, it's, it's become more prominent. But like, like my understanding is like, you know, in Belgium, it's just basically this is where the votes are, sure. so we're going to make this alliance. Cor- I mean, you know, you follow stuff much more closely than I do. Corbyn strikes me as a guy who his anti-Semitism isn't merely a function of coalition politics. Not at all. He's an old-style Jew-hating red, right? He's had this since before the end of of the Cold War. Right. There could be no Muslims in England. Oh, yeah. He would still not like Jews. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What is – what is – I mean, in England in particular, what is it about that style – where does that that tradition of red Jew-hating come from? I think it has to do with the post-colonial history of the country. Because usually when you think of anti-Semitism in Britain, you think it's on the right. You know, you think of the works, you know, Daniel Deronda, the, yeah. the, 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 the sort of literary anti-Semitism right. that we're all familiar with and the kind of, you know, the, 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 the Christian Tory anti-Semitism. That's obviously still there. But what's more worrying is this, is this left-wing anti-Semitism. I think it is, a, it is a function, it is a result of the post-colonial history of Britain, the sense of, um, uh, you know, Britain's obviously responsibility for uh, the creation of Israel and Palestine. It was the, it was the colonial occupier of that land. And the sense that Israel, the Jewish state, is an outpost or a continuation of imperialism, yeah. particularly British imperialism. And so you have this tradition on the left of basically siding with any perceived enemy of the West, of the Anglo-American alliance. And it doesn't matter how democratic or humane these political movements are. Right. Oftentimes, if not most of the time, they're quite undemocratic and inhumane. Right. But they have the side of justice on them because they're... And standing, authenticity. And right? authenticity. And and, yes. And so, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has... You know, had and and it leads to some very strange alliances where you have, you know, uh, it's it obviously is understandable to us that Jeremy Corbyn would have been sympathetic to the Soviet Union because it was a left, you know, right. quote unquote left wing movement. But today, you know, Russia under Vladimir Putin is kind of a right wing authoritarian. You could even say quasi fascist regime. Right. It is not by any means Marxist in its um, economic um, arrangements. It's sort of an oligarchic, exploitative capitalist state. But it pays well. It pays well. Um, it's oppressive towards minorities, towards gays. I mean, all these sorts of things that you would assume the left would be concerned about. You know, Russia right. under Vladimir, Vladimir Putin is not. But even for that regime, Jeremy Corbyn has sympathy. And he defended Russia during the Ukrainian crisis and said that NATO had provoked Russia. Um, Russia has committed several chemical weapons attacks on British soil, trying uh, poisoning um, former spies on British soil. Jeremy Corbyn has been hesitant to blame them for it. Mm. And he does this because Russia is perceived as a, as a counterweight to the, you know, the Anglo-American imperium. Um, and to the extent that Israel is seen as an ally of that imperium, to the extent that Jews are seen as uh, dual loyalists on behalf of that um, colonial state. And I would also mix in just your typical Marxist anti-Semitism that sees Jews as a kind of, you know, capitalist class. Right. Um, there was, a, it was funny, you know, the, for years there's been, since Jeremy Corbyn has been leader of the Labor Party, there have been these stories coming out of him, uh, either, you know, laying wreaths on the, on the graves of the Munich terrorists, you know, mm-hmm. in 1972 Olympics, calling Hamas and Hezbollah friends. And he, after each one, you would have people say, well, I'm not really sure if this is evidence of him being an anti-Semite. He just doesn't like Israel very much. And there was one old comment that came out that finally convinced everyone. And it was him making a, a, a speech where he referred to 
British Zionists、mm-hmm. as not having an English sense of humor. <laughs> in this, in this, in this was the remark that even those people who were on the fence,、uh-huh. who were willing to give Jeremy Corbyn the benefit of the, benefit of the doubt, they're like, you know what, that. Is evidence that this guy is an anti-Semite because、yeah. he's clearly trying to draw, you know, a border around who the real English people are,、yeah. and he's clearly putting Jews on the other side of it by saying、yeah. they don't have an English sense of humor, which you know in- the English people pride themselves on is their is their sense of humor, and he's saying that, that basically Jews don't have it; they're not like us,、uh-huh. and that's kind of what it took to really seal that reputation. Yeah. So, do just out of curiosity, do British Muslims have a? Robust English sense. Of yeah,、humor. I'm not really exactly. <laughs>、um, um, so, my friend in,、uh, Luke Thompson, who's a political consultant, he was on the recent episode of the Editor's Podcast, which is this other niche podcast that National Review puts out, and he was making the case that the Tories kind of screwed up the last election by going. Thermonuclear on Corbyn as a threat to we all, all we hold dear, and he had some great line where he said, "What they should have done is paint Corbyn as what he is, which is a pasty white guy who wants to make England vegan and make everybody ride bicycles, <laughs> and you know, which is a real type in England,、yes. you know, and and that he thinks next time around they'll hold back on the."、Mm. You know he's Stalin,、right. and instead go with he's the really annoying guy in the faculty lounge that lectures, lectures everybody.、Right. Um, do you think that's right? Do you think that makes more sense electorally? You know, I'm not a political strategist,、yeah. but I think the American experience actually leads me to believe it might, because we heard all these when Donald Trump was running for president, and he's going to destroy the liberal world order. He's going to become Putin's pawn. He's going to surrender the United States. And I was certainly making those arguments as well because you know what? All we had to go on was Donald Trump's rhetoric,、right. and he was saying all these crazy things about how we, Vladimir Putin was this great leader, and we're gonna, and NATO is obsolete, you know. And it turns out over the past two years, we certainly haven't surrendered to Putin.、Mm-hmm. We're supporting NATO more than we were. I think a lot of these sorts of you know dirges for the end of the liberal world order under Trump are a little premature.、Mm-hmm. And and regardless of how true those or, or those accurate those assessments might have seemed during the election, they clearly didn't work on the American people who voted for him. And it's similar with Corbyn. I mean, and Corbyn is a much more extreme version and much more worrying than Trump because unlike Trump, who I don't really think、uh, believes in much.、Mm. Corbyn is a hardcore ideologue and has、yeah. been at this stuff for thirty-five years and、yeah. can really and really hates NATO. No, Trump doesn't really care about NATO. Right. Corbyn thinks NATO is the worst thing on the world. He actually thinks NATO. He is an enemy of NATO. Yeah. He would take the side of the Warsaw Pact. But I mean, look, we had an election where for every day for months, the, all these stories about Corbyn's foreign policy views, his connections to terrorists, his you know this, this sort of endless litany of、um, terrible. Things showing how he's basically an enemy of Western civilization were repeated ad nauseum in the media, and they didn't really put a dent in his support. Yeah, he has about forty percent supporting him. So there may be some truth in your friend's、yeah. assessment. Maybe it's a generational thing. A lot of people just don't remember what the IRA was. Yeah, yeah. they don't remember that Jeremy Corbyn literally invited Jerry Adams to Parliament two weeks after they tried to kill Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Which, I mean, like, that, you know, that's like that's crazy. How is this yeah, man yeah. leader of the Labor Party? Yeah, but for a lot of people, it just doesn't. Re- re- well, but internally to the Labor Party, why why pick this guy? What what is the thinking within the internal? Well, there's、uh, 
part of the reason why Jeremy Corbyn is where he is is, is partly just a fluke, uh-huh. which is that it used to be the Labour Party leader was elected by an electoral college, and a third of the votes were given to, m- to members of parliament, a third of the votes were given to the leaders of the trade unions, and a third of the votes were given to the paid-up members. Huh. So you had you know, two of those three were sort of elites, right? right? Labor leaders and MPs. And what happened was after the last labor leader left, Ed Miliband, they changed the rules so uh-huh. that it was all one man, one vote. And not only one man, one vote, but anyone who wanted to join the labor party for three pounds got a vote. Uh, so they I got didn't so, realize that. So, so there's a similar history in our own, yeah. you know, with the Democratic Party in 1972. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how George McGovern became leader, right? As you yeah. sort of, well, you know, I'm, I'm, and I was saying this during the, um, during the 2016 election, you know, bring back the smoky back room. Right? Yeah. There's actually some some virtue in having elites determine these sorts of things. So that's a large part of how Jeremy Corbyn became leader. You had a flood of literal, you know, Trotskyists, people yeah. who had never had any sort of history. Yeah. In the Labour Party, the Labour Party, you know, it, Tony Blair was the leader. It was it right. was a it was a neoliberal right. mainstream political force, and Tony Blair had done had worked very hard to kind of kick these people out. They had been, right. I mean, the the extreme left of the Labour Party had controlled it for many years during the Thatcher period. That's why they were trounced every time, and basically got to the point where Tony Blair said, "Look, if you actually want to get in power." We're going to have to do some things. We're going to have to modernize this party. We're going to right. He got rid of what with clause clause four, four which yeah. called yeah. for the nationalization of industry, and basically all those people who had been sort of shunted aside by Tony Blair came back in. They paid up three pounds. They became members, and Jeremy Corbyn won in the first round. Yeah, yeah. He won over fifty percent, running against three other people. Huh. So there's that sort of, you know, there's the kind of mechanical understanding or explanation of how Corbyn became. And then there's a deeper explanation for how Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. And it has to do with all these sorts of changes sweeping the West right now that you talk about in your book. How does someone like Bernie Sanders become so popular? How is it that, you know, the AFD becomes, you know, this has to do with the kind of the deeper questions about populism. And I think that there is, you know, a backlash to sort of neoliberal economics, to austerity in Britain in particular, certainly to the Iraq war, which really had a much more, I think, profound effect on Brit- British politics yeah. than it has in America. Yeah, yeah. And Tony, I mean, Tony Blair cannot like go out in public anymore in Britain. He is still so loathed. Yeah, more so by people, more so by members of the Labour Party, frankly. Yeah. than by conservatives. Yeah, and that has had such a huge effect, I think, on the internal Labour Party d- dynamics that it basically created the the space where a figure like Corbyn, where where a figure like Corbyn could could become leader. Yeah, no, it's it's that's really interesting. I mean, uh, I don't want to dwell on it because I've talked about it in the last two podcasts. But I'm, I'm a, I've been writing and reading a lot about the McGovern rules and all that stuff lately because I think one of the biggest problems we've got in America today is that we live in this incredibly partisan moment, but the parties themselves have never been weaker because they've handed all of the controlling authority to, sorry to say it, the masses, yes. you know, and and it used to be that the political parties in a democracy had to be, to a certain extent, undemocratic institutions in order to filter out bad candidates, shape messages, think about their long-term interests. I mean, just on point this morning, we're recording this on today's Tuesday, right? Donald Trump over the weekend said that stupid thing about McRaven, the admiral, and the GOP Twitter account is now rushing to his defense to join in this argument that McRaven's just a partisan liberal and and all this kind this of stuff. This is the guy who killed bin Laden. This is the, this is the admiral <laughs> who for like four decades right. in the military yeah. right. and was ahead of the SEALs. Yeah. And um, and he may be a, 
liberal Democrat, that doesn't mean he's automatically wrong in what he has to say. Right. And what drives me crazy about the, just the tweet, and I, I did a response to the GOP's tweet, which kind of went semi-viral, is just that it used to be that the parties, yeah, the, you know, the president is always the head of his party, and that's understandable. But the parties themselves used to have a little more long-term interest in their own institution's viability. And now, for reasons that go back to the McGovern stuff and open primaries and campaign finance reform and all the rest, the parties are essentially just PR firms for the president when the, pre when the president's on their side. And the GOP is going to – the cost of defending this attack on McRaven, it's not the end of the GOP or anything like that. It's not cosmic. It'll be forgotten soon. But it's indicative or emblematic of how – the party has no idea what it's about other than to be for whoever the winner was. It's, you know? it's a vehicle for the president. Yeah. And I just think it's a shame. And I, I, I so it's interesting about the English side because I didn't realize that that was how Corbyn got in. I'm more and more in favor of elite institutions actually having power. Yes. Um, and I would say the same for Brexit. You know, Brexit, yeah. Brexit is not something that should have been put up to a popular vote. Yeah, I go back and forth on that one. I got But even – okay, I, I think there are, there are so many things that – I mean we – you know, you you don't put certain things up for a popular vote. You can debate whether Brexit should be should be one of them. But Brexit is such a complicated um, question, touching on. I mean, the UK's relationship with the EU touches on everything from fishing rights to foreign policy to to law and justice and whatnot. That it's it's almost a question that really can't be a yes or no answer. There mm -hmm. needs to be, you know, do you want uh, to be in the customs union and also be in the in the tariff zone? I mean, there's so many um, permutations of what your country's relationship to the EU can be that it shouldn't be so simple as a yes or no vote. So that and that that's for and I and also say, you know, you you entrust your elected officials to decide these complicated questions for you. I, I go back to Burke's speech to the electors of Bristol. Sure. When you know your listeners probably don't need to hear this, but I'll give them a <laughs> short disposition anyway. He's explaining to them why he's going to vote against what they right. believe. And he says, look, you elected me to sit there and, and read the bills and to debate them with my colleagues while you can go off and, and live your lives. And this is what – it's basically one of the most foundational principles of Republican democracy is right. and distinguishing it from democracy or, or mobocracy right. or you know, women shouting at senators in elevators and having that be what determines – what 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 happens in our country? And I think, you know, personally, I th I think Brexit should have been one of those questions, but we'll see. Yeah. So I mean, on, on well, we should get to Brexit, um, but what we should also get to is uh, conversations with Bill Crystal. <laughs> if you're not aware, and you all should be aware by now, that my friend Bill Crystal has a terrific series called Conversations with Bill Crystal. It's on YouTube, and it's also a podcast. It's on iTunes, so you can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. Bill's conversations include a wide range of really interesting topics and a diverse selection of guests, from Dick Cheney to David Axelrod. They've done more than 100 now, and it's an impressive list. So just to name a few, there was Clarence Thomas, Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, Christina Summers, Charles Murray, Jonah Goldberg. Jonah Goldberg again. Um, I, I mean, I told you they're, they're smart. And uh, I actually just listened, because I've been driving a lot lately, to the one with um, Paul Cantor about creating the canon on uh, a can that TV has reached literary status now. And I thought it was, I have, I have my differences with Paul Cantor sometimes, but I thought it was a really, really interesting one. And I've been telling Pod he has to listen to it. So anyway, you can watch any and all of Bill's conversations on the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org. 
and subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of a new release every other week. So if you like my podcast, and really, why wouldn't you? You'll enjoy conversations with Bill Crystal. Um, you said there was a, there was an inside joke about him being a quote unquote. Yeah. So uh, um, we don't need to get into this, the the names of these people, but there is a there's a movement afoot on Twitter and at some of the the more intense pro Trump sectors to kind of George Sorosify Bill and claim you know you see read these pieces where they put his you know call him quote-unquote conservative, yeah. and um, and I wrote about this recently in the G-File, but this idea that the definition of what it means to be a conservative hinges on whether or not you are all in for Donald Trump is just on the merits one of the dumbest arguments out there and is really a sign of the poisonousness of populism yeah. in this moment yeah. where, you know... I don't think Bill has recanted his position on abortion or on military stuff or anything really or on anything right so this doesn't mean that I I don't agree with Bill tactically on how he talks about some of this stuff and some of his tweets I tweets are that have gone too far the other way and I guess he's getting some guy he's donated to his group that is a sort of Soros mini me I don't remember what his name is yeah. but I don't care you know, uh, but what they're trying to do is this guilt by association stuff against Bill. And I have no problem with people having disagreements with Bill. But the idea that, you know, that if you could subscribe sort of perfectly to the views of Russell Kirk or Edmund Burke or Barry Goldwater or, or William F. Buckley, but you don't like Donald Trump, therefore you're not a conservative – just as idiotic to me. And you might not be a Republican yeah, yeah, that's in, this, fine. in this new era. Who yeah, knows? That's totally fine. Right. I have no problem with, with that. I mean, I don't I'm by default a Republican, right. but I don't I've never really cared about that part of it. But conservatism is supposed to mean something yeah. other than hitching your the yardstick cannot be Donald Trump. That is not a well, permanent standard of sure. anything, right? Yes. I've also said that I've I've taken a break from Twitter for almost a month now. And it has uh, immeasurably improved my Sanity. I hear that from a lot of people. Uh, Todd did that for a month. Blood pressure. Yeah. Um, and you know, Twitter is such a distortive effect on your perception of reality. You think that things are true or maybe true or you sense that something is a trend or happening. Yeah. yeah. And it's really not. Yeah. 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 That's true. It gives you this alternative zeitgeist. Right. That isn't real. Right. To a certain extent, exactly. You know? And I, I, I most often find I, – I realize that most often – when I'll go in with too much enthusiasm to my wife and tell her about something on Twitter and she'll look at me like, okay. Right, you yeah, know? Right. Um, Like, take out the dog. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, right, but let's go back to um, the Brexit stuff and nationalism. Have you read Yoram Hazoni's book? I've read parts of it. Yeah. Can I just say one thing before you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is also another thing where Europe is different from America and where the criticisms that are applied to people who use certain language are different in America and Europe. So when Trump says, I'm a nationalist. Right. They hear that very differently. And every, yeah. yeah, yeah. And everyone, but everyone here jumps on him and says, oh, he's a, he's a fascist. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a white nat. Now, look, I'm not a nationalist. Right. I mean, but, but Trump's not using it in the same way right. as, say, Viktor Orban is or Vladimir Putin right. or the unseemlier sides of the right in Europe. I mean, right. it means something different in America than it does in Europe. And, and, and this is something where I wish we had a little more nuance in yeah. our in our conversation yeah i mean i i 
I thought Macron's statement was pandering yeah. to the French audience yeah. and all the rest. And but the the sort of ritualistic denunciations from Americans yeah. about Macron, I thought represented a misunderstanding of of the resonance of those words in French. Sure. That that doesn't have here. I mean, De Gaulle had that line where he said, "Patriotism is love of your own country. Nationalism is hatred of other people," or something like that. I'm not sure that's true either. Right. But De Gaulle was certainly a nationalist. Yes, he was. You know, um, and it just it, it, there's just some things that don't translate very well, right. and we run around with our heads on fire about them. Yeah. But so, what do you think? Of, let me put it this way. Where do you come down on the growing love affair among con- American conservatives with with nationalism? Well, it depends what what you mean by nationalism. Well, that's part of the problem. But you know that I, I left it open. You know, look, I mean, right. look, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify. My colleague, my friend, Rich Lowry, he's working yeah. a book about nationalism. He and Ramesh did this cover story for yeah. National Review where they made the case for what they called benign nationalism. Mm-hmm. And part of my criticism of it is that that word benign does a lot of work. Right. You know? Um, and I am for all benign things. Things, right. yeah, you know? wouldn't be. And, and I think that, you know, so part of my problem with the word nationalism is, like, the way Yoram Hrazoni uses it, what he's really talking about is nationism, countryism, right? He wants that the fundamental global order should not get any bigger than a bunch of sovereign nation states. And I'm okay with that argument to a certain extent. It doesn't mean that you can't have multilateral institutions Mm -hmm. and all these kinds of things. And I do find this claim that the EU is the moral equivalent of the Soviet Union, Union, which you hear a lot in Eastern Europe. very pernicious. And on the American right. Yeah. the American right. I do think it's nonsense. It's crazy. You know, um, you can... You can not be a fan of the EU and also note that the EU doesn't have a gulag, you know, that it doesn't conduct show trials right. and shoot people in the back of the head, right? I mean, yeah. these strike me as important distinctions, yeah. you know. But on the Brexit thing, I'm not sure it was in America's interest for England, for Britain to mm-hmm. do it. But I'm pretty sure that if I lived in England, or in the UK, whatever. Well, that's a big question because uh, England, it was really a question of English nationalism. Yeah. Scots voted against it. Right. The Northern Irish voted against it. Wales was, was very close. It was really a vote of the English. Yeah, right. But go ahead. You yeah, but I, I'm not sure I would. I, I think I probably would have voted for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I thought it was political malpractice not to have a plan about it. Right. You know, what What happens when you catch, the, when the dog catches the car? That's, that's what is this this clown show that we've seen is that they had no idea what to do after they won. But I think all in all, I probably would have voted for it. You would have voted against it. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. On what grounds? On the grounds that I think economically it's not in the interests of Britain. Although it's interesting. I think most of the people who voted for Brexit are willing to acknowledge that they'll actually perhaps take an economic hit. Sure. And I think that there was this assumption on the part of those of us who oppose Brexit that if we just ram down their throats that nine out of ten economists you know, oppose Brexit, yeah. then they'll just obviously vote against it. And, there was this, and this has to do with so much of populism today, right, is this, this notion that it's, if we just make it so obviously plain that the materialist arguments right. are in our favor, then we'll be able to persuade people when actually a lot of the reason why we're seeing this populist ferment has to do with – Questions of the heart, the soul. You know, Man does cult- not live by bread alone. Culture, right? And so I think a lot of people were who voted for Brexit wanted to 
increase British sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And that word, we can we can you know we can spit upon it, and we can we can we can sort of deride those people who who say that they want more of it. But it actually does really count for something. But I think that the materialist arguments were against it, the economic arguments were against it. And I also think that Britain will be Britain is there seems to be an assumption on the part of those people who support Brexit that Britain has the sort of global influence and power that it did in the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. And you see this in their rhetoric and their talk about forming all these trade deals. And they basically want Britain to become Singapore yeah. you know, in the North Atlantic. And I just don't think that that's possible in the 21st century. Britain does not, does, does not have that sort of influence. And the EU really is, a, is an amplifier for Britain on the global stage. And I think in, in a world where China is becoming a, you know, a more assertive force, um, where other countries around the world are becoming more powerful, where, this, where the – the balance of power is moving east. Um, I think Europe needs to be more united, and Europe needs to act on the global stage as, um, you know, sort of one 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 voice to the extent that it can. And Britain not being in the rooms of Brussels, Britain not being a part of those conversations, I think, is going to lead to a decline in influence. And I can tell you this: I travel to Europe frequently. The British are just not a factor anymore in many of these conversations. They're just not because they've been navel gazing for the past two years about you know what are they going to yeah. what are they going to do for for Brexit? Yeah, I mean, but the, I mean, can't we? But can't, since this, this podcast is a riot of nuance, uh, can we carve out just a little bit of a, a room here to point out that so much of this is driven by the fact that the continental European elites in the EU are a bunch of jackasses, <laughs> a bunch of like, you know, micromanaging a feat um, – Human toothaches. I think you're falling a little too much for the kind of British tabloid press um, characterization of what the EU is and what it does. And we all have seen these stories, right, about like regulating the size of bananas. And all yeah, that yeah. Stuff. And they and they do that. Okay, uh-huh. fine. But you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the period of greatest economic growth, prosperity, and peace in Europe that it's known has coincided with European integration. And I obviously know I'm, I'm not, you know, when the EU got the Nobel Peace Prize, I was there saying, you know what, NATO should get the Nobel Peace Prize. Sure. Okay? And, I, and I completely understand that, you know, the main reason why we've had peace in Europe since the end of World War II is because of the, the United States and the role that we've played. But, you know, concomitant with that and going along with that has been European integration and the fact that these countries that have been warring for thousands of years don't do it anymore. And part of the reason is because they're so economically interconnected. Yeah, no, I, 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 I buy that. I mean, it doesn't seem like to me like like the EU in the last twenty years is a really a wonderful example of economic dynamism. I'm not sure I buy that part of it, but it is the the largest economy in the in the world. Yeah, but EU. Yeah, yeah, but that's because you just you stuck a bunch of countries sure. together. You know, <laughs> you know. I mean, I mean, what what is the, the growth is growth is probably greater because they have share a common currency and because they've. Eliminated regulations between you know there's there's open there's open markets there's open open trade there's um, movement free movement of people and all these in all these different countries and I think that's played a role. What too. has been the GDP growth rate of the EU? Low, absolutely, particularly since two thousand eight, it's been right. low. Okay, at, in some years it's zero. Okay, well that's yeah, that's bad. No, yeah. that's bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and but anyway, the point I was trying to get to is that you know the as you put it, you're absolutely right that that. Um, NATO deserved the peace prize. I remember in 
early 2000s, there was a front page Washington Post puff piece about all these European Union guys congratulating themselves. And there was one guy from a European think tank who said, you know, look what we've accomplished, this this zone of freedom where we've done, and I'm like, and they make it sound as if what created this zone of peace or zone of freedom or whatever you called it was the result of a bunch of people in overpriced suits in hotel conference rooms eating clever cheese, right. you know, when in reality... It's U.S. Marines. It was, yeah, yeah. It was, it was the... And U.S. nuclear weapons. Yeah, it was yeah. America right. that did it. And, uh, but if you just... I mean, one of the things I think that people are going to have to grapple with is the main driver of populism is immigration. Yep, I agree. And the sense to which elites are unable to deal with immigration as a legitimate issue that doesn't make you a bad person if you're for less immigration. Absolutely. And like the Angela Merkel's decision to let in all the refugees, I think will go down in history as one of the worst owned goals in in the 21st century and is going to have huge repercussions. It already has had huge repercussions. Um, I'm actually writing a paper for Brookings now, basically making this this point. And I think it is the main driver of the extreme parties that you see in Europe. I mean, I'll give you Sweden as a the kind of paradigmatic example. Yeah. Where for Sweden for years, you had polls showing 40% of Swedes wanted to seriously reduce immigration. But there was no one in the respectable mainstream political spectrum that was willing to give any sort of you know policy realization mm. to that view. Even on the center-right, you would think it's a center-right party would be expressing you know, support for um, re- uh, regulations or restrictions on migration. They weren't doing it. And so what happens? You have this party called the Sweden Democrats. Which who are has bad a, guys. Who are legit bad guys who, has the, who have their origins in the neo-Nazi movement. And they first get into parliament just a couple of years ago. And in the last election, they've only been in parliament for maybe five or six years, okay? In the last election, they got almost 20%. And that's because you know, there's going to come a point where – you know, people like you and me, we're not going to vote for the Sweden Democrats, right. even if even if we don't agree with the mainstream parties. But most people don't pay attention to politics that much. And if they really care about an issue like immigration, particularly if they're a member of a lower economic class who actually has to maybe compete with mm-hmm. immigrants for jobs, who are living cheek by jowl with immigrant communities, and there well, are the sorts kids of, are going to schools, kids are going to schools, the crime of, yeah. that, and there is crime associated with migration. Going back to something. That I actually defended Donald Trump on. You don't remember the whole last night in Sweden debacle where he was referring to something he had seen on Fox News. It was a a documentary about crime in Sweden. And he said, did you see what happened last night in Sweden? And everyone made fun of him because literally nothing had happened last night in Sweden. He was referring to something he had seen on on Tucker Carlson's show. And so the great and the good mocked Donald Trump. But the reality is, is that there are problems, serious problems associated with the immigration that's been going into into Sweden. And so what happens? People vote for a party, however unseemly it is, however bad its views are on NATO or Russia or all sorts of the Jews. The Jews. <laughs> they're gonna vote for that party. Right. And that's been happening. It's the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, a far right party for the first time in the German Bundestag since the nineteen fifties, a far right nationalist party. It's the third biggest party in the Bundestag and according to polls it might be the second biggest party in Germany right now. Yeah. That's a direct function. Of yep. this. And this is happening in every country. But so this is what I was trying to get at about the EU part is that and it's not just the EU. It's it's elites in America, too, is 
they because they've so bought into what do you want to call it multiculturalism or diversity stuff that they now take it as a philosophical prior that if you're against large amounts of immigration you're racist right and so you know it's been national i mean i keep bringing it up on this podcast it's been the national review's position for decades that if responsible politicians don't take up the issue of immigration, irresponsible, irresponsible ones will fill the void, that's right? That's happening. Yeah. And that's happening all over the place. And I think the EU, in part, created some of these problems. And if you look at Brexit, I, I understand that a lot of the immigrants that that Brits have problems with have nothing to do with the EU, right? But you get spillover. And a lot of the people who voted for Brexit, when I looked at the exit polls for it, were people... The, one of the main drivers was but, the main driver. Yeah, was was but this idea that the country they knew is being taken away from them. Yeah, and um, I'm a big believer that you can have, you know, I think the international sphere and the domestic sphere are not parallel things, and so you could have, you know, like my one of my favorite metaphors, The Walking Dead, right? You know, within the gates of your little citadel. You can have all sorts of rules about how everyone has to be treated fairly, everyone has to be treated politely and all this kind of stuff. But strangers who come up to the gates, mm-hmm. you can treat a completely different way. And it doesn't mean you're evil. It yes. just means there are these zones, right? Yeah. And the problem with, I, it seems to me, these sort of cosmo, literally cosmopolitan in the, in mm-hmm. the, the Diogenes sense, yeah. right? Citizens of the world. They want to... If you listen to Barack Obama's Berlin speech, we must get rid of all walls, you know? And it was like, it kind of reminded me of that scene from The Jerk where the guy, you know, is trying to kill Steve Martin. And Steve Martin's like, he's shooting these cans, more cans, right? And he's like, he was talking about walls like everywhere as if they're right. this terrible thing. That mindset is so disconnected from wants and desires of basically decent people. Yeah, I agree. And then when you tell those basically decent people they're racists, the social science now is showing that the more, for real racist. the more you call them right. racist, yeah. the more you make them more racist rather than actually shame them out of racism because right. they, they don't think that they're being racist by saying, hey, look, I don't want more of these people that we can't assimilate, that don't want to assimilate. And so I, I actually I, I think you make you can make a very good case against Brexit. But I think that one of the reasons why it got so sharp was was because of the way elites condescended to their own population. That's definitely true, but I would just say that the I think the EU is actually the best means of controlling immigration into Europe. And that you as know, a policy matter. As a policy yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah, that's not probably be, true. And that look, one of the great achievements of Europe of the EU and most people would agree with this is the free movement within the mm-hmm. EU, the Schengen zone, right. which is the the ability to travel uh, from, you know, from the Baltic states to France without a passport. That's a great thing. It's right. great for the economy. It makes it things easier. But you can't have those free internal borders unless you have a external border, right? Like we, I can't travel to uh, Massachusetts to California if we have no no border with Mexico. Right. Then that's going to be impossible. We'll let everyone in the in the in the country. So the EU has to be able to control its external border, and that's only going to be you're only be you're only going to be able to do that through the mechanism of a supranational institution, which is the European Union. Yeah. No, I, 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 but they're doing a bad job. They're doing a bad job. <laughs> and, but, I, but I think that they've, they've realized, they've woken up since 2015. They see what's going on in their own countries. They see that there's not an appetite for the kind of, you know, utopian open borders project that you were um, talking about earlier. And I think that, that there is, has now been a sufficient wake-up call. So, you know what would have been extremely helpful? 
is if the EU used podium. So, like, you know when you've gone to a uh, store and you got great service or when you've gone to a restaurant and you had a uh, really fantastic meal or uh, the mechanics were Johnny on the spot fixing your car or whatever it is, um, uh, you want to sort of seize that moment to do something positive for, for the for the business. And that's one of the things that Podium allows you to do. Um, it gives um, opportunity for immediate feedback through text and allows, and allows businesses to generate more positive reviews that they deserve. 83% of happy customers are willing to leave a re- review, but only 23% actually do. You can take, for businesses, this is a way to take control of your online reputation by giving your customers a voice, not just a handful of angry ones. Podium users see a 6% increase in revenue just from reviews. So here's what you can do. Reviews matter. The way you show up online determines who shows up at your door. So you can go to podium.com slash dingo for 10% you're off your monthly subscription. Become the obvious choice online. Go to podium.com slash dingo to get started and save 10%. The dingo ate my baby. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> so I want to talk about Yale in a second. Oh. but Because they could have used Podium as well. Yes. But you're talking about how Hungary is whitewashing its yeah. Holocaust history, all this kind of stuff. I think – and there's a couple of things. One, you also said in the piece, which I had not realized, that Václav Klaus is now – who is the – He's pro-Putin. How did that happen? So for listeners who don't know, Václav Klaus – um, was the president of the Czech Republic after Havel? After Havel, um, a sort of free market economist, um, or that's, that was his rap yeah. in the West. Yeah. You know, I headlined, I, I emceed a CEI dinner ten years ago where they gave him an award, and at the time his rep was great. He was like a libertarian economist guy, free market guy, Hayekian guy. But I guess that, ha- and, and you know, I have some emotional attachment to the Czechs because I lived there yeah. um, for a little while after college, and my my father-in-law was right. Slovakian and all that. So what happened to Klaus? Klaus is... Like a Gerard Schroeder kind of deal? You know, I think Klaus basically is a... He's a, a provincial nationalist uh-huh. and uh, a very kind of small-minded guy. And, you know, if you look at the kind of like two sides to the Czech character, there's sort of Havel, mm-hmm. who's the philosopher king who, you know, maybe doesn't really know the kind of details of government of governing or economics, but his heart is in the right place. Yeah. Is a is a wonderful philosopher of freedom and liberty and humanity and and wrote plays. He's a mensch. He's a mensch. Yeah. And Klaus is like the kind of small minded kind of peasant mentality. Like doesn't, you know, kind of of, of the sort of the, the backwoods kind of Czech uh-huh. who, you know, just wants his beer and his in his sausage and kind of grouses at the pub and doesn't really want to talk to foreigners and doesn't want the foreigners in his country. And that's kind of Klaus. And that's, you know, Klaus represents the kind of ugly side of that country, frankly, and the ugly side of a lot of people in that part of the world. And, um, you know, Klaus had a... I broke the story in the Daily Beast a couple of years ago. He had a fellowship at, at Cato, and they got rid of him because he had been so outspokenly pro-Putin. Yeah. Um, I had, I had not there are there's that, there's you know. speculation that he's receiving money from uh-huh. the Russians, and that could be true. But it's actually kind of in line with what Klaus has been and always has been, which is you know he's not a kind of transatlanticist in the yeah. way that Havel was. He doesn't really feel that in his gut. You know the, the the importance of liberal democratic values. Klaus is now a supporter of the alternative for Deutschland in Germany. He spoke at their party con- at their party convention, so he's you know he's been like this for a long time, and he's 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 really. Um, 
a schmuck. Okay, if, Cla- if Havel is a mensch, then Klaus uh, is a is a is a schmuck. This is I, I, I take you at your word. It's really disappointing in part because he was a big fan of my book and he wrote a nice review of it. The first, the first one. <laughs> no, the second one, which okay. no one has. Um, although he might have written about the first one too. I can't remember now because all the day drinking. But that's too bad. I, I had not realized. Anyway, so about the hungry thing, this raises. I'm interested in the the hungry thing, but it actually what it calls to mind is one of my great historical peeves. Is, um, and I think it's terrible that they're erasing their history and all the rest. But you know who got away with it the most? It was Austria. Oh yeah, and first victims. You mean for the first victims? That's right. Mm. You know where the 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 Nazis invaded to ticker tape, <laughs> um, and uh, and. It's been an obsession of mine for a very long time. I, you know, I, I, I did this junket in Switzerland. Um, I wish I could have done more. It's like the only European junket I've ever been invited on for the U.S. Swiss Foundation. It was wonderful. And they were bringing journalists from the West over in part to deal with the Nazi gold stuff, which was a bad chapter. But at the time, you know, the Swiss were getting such unbelievably bad press as quote-unquote collaborators and all the rest. And I think that was always a bit far-fetched, right? I mean, armed neutrality was not exactly easygoing when you're one of the countries between Germany and Italy, yeah. you know? Right. And and there was cooperation with the, with with America and all sorts of... It helped the Allies to have neutral ground in the middle sure. there, right? But meanwhile, Austria just sort of got off scot-free because of the Cold War when a lot... You know, if you read the story of the rise of Nazism... A lot of the worst Nazis, well, including the leader, in, including, <laughs> right? Because there's this weird thing in in, um, in the psychology of these extreme political movements, particularly with nationalism, is that the people who are on the periphery, who are slightly, who can't quite necessarily claim purity on these things, they have to be more German than the Germans, right? They have to be more nationalist, more Nazi, and so the like. That was part of Hitler's thing. Was he? was insecure about his Germanness, so he had to overdo it more than everybody else. But, you know, the Austrians did terrible, terrible, terrible things. And I think one of the reasons why the far right in Austria has always had a better time of it is because they never had, at least the Germans right. went through a serious yes. process of like, oh my God, look what we did. Yep. Um, the Austrians never did any of that. And that guy who, uh, the guy who almost won. Um, Heider? Was that it? Yeah, it the last election. He had to have this weird coalition of greens and sane people to keep them out of... Is this in Austria you're talking about? In Austria, well, yeah. Well, the far-right party is in coalition with is it? the leading Christian Democratic Party, yes. They're they're in a, a center-right, far-right coalition government, yeah. Sebastian Kurz is the chancellor. He's 31 years old. He's like the youngest leader in the world. He's the Christian Democrat, but he's yeah. in coalition with the far-right, with the, with the Freedom Party. Um, and it's controversial. I actually think that, you know, we we're talking earlier about populism and how to deal yeah. with populists. I think Kurz in Austria is proving to be in, in sort of interesting kind of example or you know how to how to do it to actually engage them uh-huh. bring them into government to take their concerns seriously but to kind of you know keep them away from you know meddling in the internal democracy of the country right and we'll see what what happens they've only been in power for about a year and a half but there's there's different models of how to deal with this question yeah. of kind of far right populism and austria sort of one so case. what what and i know the definitions of these things can get dicey what western country do you think is most in danger of the sort of neo-Nazi types taking over? Taking over? Well, actually winning wow. a majority. I mean, that's that. Well, Italy, that's the fear. Italy, right? we already have this. Yeah. We have, uh, we have a, a populist, 
alliance where we have a far-right populist party, the League, formerly the Northern League, right. which is a kind of separatist party, um, with this guy Salvini, who's the interior minister, who's definitely talks occasionally like a neo-fascist. Yeah. And he's in coalition with the Five Star Movement, which was founded by this comedian, Beppe Grillo. Right. And they're a left-wing populist party. So it's a sort of interesting, you know, but what is it, the, the hourglass political spectrum, to, to, to describe the political spectrum. It's not a line. It's a... It's like a circle, right, with the far right and the far left. Uh-huh. It's, it's kind we can of talk about that in a minute. Yeah, but that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of actually happening in yeah. in, in Italy now. Um, you know, Hungary is an interesting case where you have a, a party in government, the the Fidesz party, where um, they've basically become the far right party. There was, there still is a party called Jobbik, right, which for years was identified as being a kind of neo Nazi party. And I've interviewed their leaders, and they certainly are neo Nazis. But it's weird in the past couple of years they've almost sort of switched places where they've be, they've tried to come off as being more moderate. Mm-hmm. They've kind of apologized to the Jews, basically saying, eh, we don't believe that stuff anymore. It's obviously, I don't believe it. But, um, but you know, Fidesz has kind of, in the, since the migrant crisis, has really become more nationalistic, xenophobic, illiberal, mm-hmm. anti-Semitic. Um, and, you, and you have that now in, in Hungary. You know, in Germany, it's very hard to see the AFD actually ever coming to power. Mm-hmm. But in certainly in the former Eastern Germany, they are in some of those provinces. They're the second biggest party, and that has to do with reasons of you know you're talking earlier about Germany coming to terms with its past. Right. East Germany didn't, yeah, didn't, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why the far right, in a kind of paradoxical, ironic way, is 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 actually far more popular in in East Germany than it is the former East Germany than it is in in the former West Germany. All right. Well, I mean, I could dwell on some of this stuff forever, but um, so you were. You were trying to do some sort of hostile takeover at Yale recently, right? I was running to be uh, a petition candidate for the board of trustees to get on the ballot. And it unfortunately, didn't... I didn't get enough signatures. How many did you need? I needed 4,266, which is 3% of all living Yale alumni of all the schools, medical uh-huh. school, forestry school, nursing school. Uh-huh. And I only Auto received... repair. Yeah. And I received about 2,500, maybe 2,300, uh-huh. which was a healthy number. But it was far more difficult than I thought it would be. I was proud. I think I was the only initiative in the history of mankind to earn the support of both uh, Ed Meese and Larry Kramer, the famous AIDS activist. Nice. Both Yale alums. Uh-huh. And, you know, we ran a good campaign. I traveled the country. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, Bill, Bill Buckley did this. He, he, he ran in 1966, I believe. He actually got on the board, but uh-huh. – sorry, he got on the ballot, but he lost to Cy Vance. Is that right? Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I was trying to get on the board. On a on a free speech uh-huh. platform because this is, this has been a something of a problem. Yes, on college campuses and and Yale as well. And where do you think the why 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 is it that Yale all of us? I mean, like normally we expect among Ivy League schools that the real left wing asininity is at Brown. Yes, right. And it seems like that is no longer the case, and it's migrated to Yale. Why is that? <sighs> I can't answer why Yale in particular has has been in the news more of late. There's just been a series of sort of high-profile incidents that yeah. have been particularly bad. The one is obviously this, this incident involving Halloween costumes right. in 2015. I think part of it has to do with the number of administrators. Uh-huh. And it's administrators who cause a lot of these problems. If you think the professors are liberal... Or left wing. No, that's right. The administrators are ten times even more so. Yeah, yeah. And so this controversy that happened in 2015, it involved one of these administrators writing an email to the entire student body, basically giving them examples of what sort of costumes they should and shouldn't wear. 
And I can tell you, being a Yale student, we never had any problems regarding racist or offensive Halloween costumes. Yeah. So this was a completely unnecessary right. provocation on the part of this administrator. And in response to this email, uh, a professor, a master, although that's a term we can't use anymore. Right, you can't say master anymore. Yeah. Wrote an email to her students basically saying, you know what? I think you're adults. I think you're old enough to decide what yeah. you can wear on Halloween. And if you don't like what one of your fellow students are wearing, you can either ignore it or, you know what? You can go up and talk to them and tell them why you don't like their yeah. costume. And simply for writing this, her husband was subjected to this yeah. Maoist you know, struggle session, which was videotaped. Yeah. And put on the internet and became this huge, huge scandal. And it was the university's reaction to it that was really troubling. You know, instead of kind of standing solidly with the professors and basically telling the students this behavior is completely unacceptable, you can't, you know, surround a tenured professor and scream and curse at him for two hours. Right. They basically sort of acceded to their demands. Um, and this upset a lot of the people, a lot of the alums. And I was approached as someone who'd been writing about this as a concerned alum basically asked to kind of, you know, throw throw my hat in the ring, and I and I did. And I, and I have to say I've gained a, a newfound appreciation, I think, for elected officials and for politicians, seeing what it's like to yeah. actually subject yourself to, to, all, that you know, to all that crap and, yeah. and be, be questioned on your views and have to have, to have a, an answer yeah. to, to questions, to things that you might not have previously thought much about. It's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> Rich Lowry tells this story about how there was this boomlet briefly that the conservative party might – nominate Rich to run for mayor yeah. in New York was 15 years ago. Like, or like Buckley had. Yeah. There's a glorious tradition of yes. this at National Review. And so Rich is leaving his building and is in the lobby and he runs into a woman in the lobby and she says, oh, I hear, I hear you might run for mayor. I'm totally with you. I'm, I'm going to support you 100%. But I have one question for you. Where do you come down on rent control? <laughs> and Rich, like, this is Rich's story about how instantaneous the corrupting effects of running for office are. Like, Rich doesn't believe in rent control, right. but he's like, oh, well, it's a complicated issue. <laughs> We're studying it. And he right. refuses to answer the question. Right. Um, yeah, that's why I'm perfectly comfortable in my remnant. Um, no, but on, on the Yale stuff, I mean, this is the, the I mean, I talk about this a bit in my book, but th it's it's a microcosm, obviously, but it is... An example of the why I use the word suicide, right? Because suicide's a choice. Yeah. And it used to be that the debates on college campuses were always about where to draw the line on free speech, which I think is a perfectly legitimate debate to have, right? And but now, the, what do you just explain that? What, what do you mean? Well, like you know, what? How much free speech are we willing to tolerate? You know, can you? Does it violate the honor code or whatever? Right? You know, um, should we? You know, sh should Nazis be allowed to speak, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I don't mind those debates. I'm, I've always been more philosophically sympathetic to the idea that certain institutions can have a, uh, a censorship function of some kind or another. But the principle of free speech is something to protect, right? And, and what bothers me about what, the, what was going on at Yale and in lots of places is now the principle itself is suspect right now it's or illegitimate it's that the that free speech is a tool of yeah. the white supremacy right. right it's the same thing with you know this is a big part of when i talk about the book stuff you know when martin luther king was talking at the march on washington he was calling out american hypocrisy for not living up to its ideals about judging people by the contents of their character and the color of their skin now colorblindness you know 
is racist, yes. right? And so it's it's one thing to say we're not living up to our ideals or that we need to make trade-offs in how we apply Same these the principles. Ideals, the ideals themselves. But now the ideals right. themselves are being rendered illegitimate and corrupt and racist. And that's what's really suicidal and dangerous. And it's it's that – and so you now – and this is one of the things that breaks my heart. And I know we're sort of simpatico in a lot of this stuff about chunks of the right that – are saying, look, the identity politics left one, so now we need our own identity politics, right? Uh, this was part of Michael Anton's argument yeah. with me in a debate we had online when he was still under a pseudonym, where he was saying, look, that D- whole... Dubious, dubious, publicus... Something like... Decius, yeah, something yeah. or other. Yeah, and um, and his argument was that old model of, of colorblindness and judging people by the contents of their character, that's gone. The left won that argument... So now we need our own identity politics. And that to me is a suicidal choice. And it is certainly a profound if – if, if that is going to be the new argument, right? You know, if Steve Bannon can go around, you know, underneath all those layers of shirts and talk about how we're nativist and bigot as badges of honor, right? And now I guess he's a consultant to, Corbin, uh, to Orban now, yeah. right? That needs a much more robust debate on the American right than we're seeing, but because it's all subsumed in Trumpiness, lots of people just don't want to have it because they think it reflects badly on Trump. And I agree with you entirely. Trump's definition of nationalism is vanilla ice cream stuff. Yes. Bannon's isn't. Right. But Bannon's thought about this stuff. Trump just... No, just mouths it. Yeah, it's, it's platitudinous. And we're not having that argument on the right. Um, and I think that's... If, if if the right has a can't beat them, join them attitude about free speech, about identity politics, about, uh, you know, we don't like their nationalism. Because Obama was a nationalist about economics, about economic patriotism and all this kind of stuff. Nationalism is by nature centralizing in terms of state power. Um, and he was a crony capitalist and all that kind of stuff. Now lots of people on the right have are saying the same thing. They just like different cronies, right? And they like different definitions of... Of of the flavor of nationalism, but the substance of it, there's the 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 two sides are actually converging rather than pulling farther apart. Am I crazy about that? Am I rambling? Uh, no, you seem to be uh, uh, very accurate in that. <laughs> and um, it's been very difficult for someone like me, who and I, someone like yourself, who doesn't find uh, that they fit in in either side of this debate. You know, if you like some of what Trump does. Policy-wise, like you know, I support moving the embassy to Jerusalem, right. or you know, maybe I like the tax cutter. Who knows? Right. Then you are. I like the judges. Yeah, or I'll give you an example. I don't know if you've been going back to the whole George Soros thing. This this controversy with Facebook and Tim Miller. I don't mm. know if, if you've been following this. No, I haven't. So Facebook, um, so Facebook has been a target of George Soros's wrath. He's mm. been attacking them publicly in speeches and funding some of the NGOs that are calling for Facebook to be broken up. Mm. And they hired a, a consulting firm, a, a lobbying consulting PR firm called Definers, one of whose uh, principals is – or one of the people who are doing the work for them is Tim Miller, right. the former spokesman for Jeb Bush. Right. And a friend of ours. Friend of ours, prominent never-Trumper. Yeah. You could even say maybe a bit of a squish when it comes to being a conservative. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Tim Miller is, is – you, you don't get more never-Trump than Tim Miller. Okay? Yeah. Tim Miller has been doing some publicity work on this campaign. Um, and part of running a, 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 a PR campaign involves putting out oppo research. And part of the oppo research that Definers se- uh, sent out to reporters 
involved some negative stories about George Soros or showing just basically showing that he's been funding through open society, his philanthropy, some of these groups that are part of the Freedom from Facebook coalition. When this was revealed in the New York Times last week in a major story, Tim, who has a show or has a who's a regular guest on the Pod Save America podcast, right. has been now suspended from that because he's now part of, according to the left, the broad, crazy anti-Semitic war yeah. against George Soros. This is crazy. Yeah. This is absolutely nuts. But because we're so tribal, because you're either on the blue team or the red team, you know, Tim Miller, who, you know, of all the never Trump people you would think who would be palatable to the left to the point where yeah. he's a regular, a regular on Pod Save America. Yeah. He's now been cast out. And I just find that, I mean, this, this to me is one of the most, you know, uh, strongest examples of how crazy the tribalism has yeah. become. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I hadn't followed all that because I, my eyes glaze over when I read about anything about Facebook tech. Basically. Well, Face, tech, Facebook. Not, not necessarily tech, but like the idea that a bunch of ads showing that, yeah, Satan sure. and God arm wrestling over the 2016 election that that carried the country. Right. I just, I, all of that stuff to me is sort of an example of the paranoid style in American politics. Yeah, and then there's 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 a part of the American left now that has become McCarthyite. Yeah, no, I think that's right. In, in terms of in terms of Russia, which is just strange because you think of, you know, where they were during the Obama years when they were mocking Mitt Romney for very accurately saying in 2012 right. that Russia is our number one geopolitical foe. Right. Those same people who were laughing at him and calling him some, you know, retrograde cold warrior are now seeing Russians under every bed. And I never thought that I would be saying these things because I've always been I've always been the one who, who's been told. Jamie, you're obsessed with the Russians. You see them right, under every right, right. bed. And I was cert- I was banging that drum during the campaign when Donald Trump was running for president. But I, I, I do think that this the, the, there is a hysteria yeah. about Russia in Amer- in the role that they're playing in, in American politics. Well, and it's, Cause it's, 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 it's a useful um, excuse. And there, there's actually some – I actually agree with some of the kind of Bernie left on this, that for the kind of Clintonite left – it's a useful way for them to just kind of ignore any of their own failings That's right. or their inability to connect to, you know, working class white voters or, you know, all the reasons why Hillary lost. You can just say, well, it's, it's Vladimir Putin that did right, this. Right, right. No, the, the Russians are for the left what the globalists right. are for the right, right? Yeah. It's like um, anytime things don't go their way, it's because someone's pulling right. strings. But there's a weird thing with Russia on the right now, too. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, guys who call themselves nationalists wearing I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat. Right. T-shirts, that's that's weird, that's too. That's disturbing. Yeah. yeah. All right, so last question. I know yeah. you got to go. Uh, but all, you just reminded me of it on this Russia stuff. I don't, I, I'm not trying to be ad hominem or pejorative or any of that kind of stuff. What is the deal with like Glenn Greenwald <laughs> and that crowd when it comes to Russia? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Is there... You know, you know, he's on Tucker's show. I mean, there's just some weird stuff that I, in part because I, I just find it so disturbing. I just haven't followed. I, I think it goes back to to Corbyn and this this part of the left, the anti-imperialist, so-called. It's strange that they that they consider themselves anti-imperialist when it's Russia, right? Which is well, the number one. Russia is the number one imperialist power right now. It's right. occupying multiple territories belonging to multiple other countries and, you know, sends its soldiers abroad to, you know, cause war and whatnot. I think it, it derives from the sort of anti-imperialist left that basically sees any countervailing force, any force that withstands or uh, resists, you know, American global hegemony as being basically defensible or basically being worthy of our support. And so that goes to, you know, Greenwald's had this 
for years. I mean, no, he, I was, know he was a supporter of, of Snowden, yeah. who, you know, for all intents and purposes, is a Russian agent. Right. Um, I really think that's what it goes to. I don't. I don't think Glenn Greenwald, you know, admires Vladimir Putin personally or wants to, you know, emulate the Russian system. I think he's just sort of a knee-jerk defender of any force, whether it's in, whether it's you know someone accused but, of terrorism or or a, but a it's, state. But it's weird because I mean I know the, I know the apologetics for for Islamic terrorists and all that kind of stuff, and I get the Russia part of it. But why aren't more people on the left celebrating China? I don't quite get why China, because China is a resistance to American hegemony. China is a greater threat to American hegemony than Russia is in the long term, yeah. right? Um, it's also got, I mean, in the 90s you had, in the early 2000s, you had sort of establishment Clintonite liberals just man-crushing on, over China, right? I mean, like, the stuff that Tom Friedman wrote was so disgusting, um, you know, uh, you know this China for a day right, stuff right, and all right, of right. that, but that was that was classic American progressive technocratic envy for authoritarianism, right? For optimal policies mm. and being able to do what you want to do as a tradition going back a hundred years in America. Right, it's progressivism, right? It's yeah, like it's Dewey it's, and it, like, it, yeah, right. yeah, it goes back to you know Wilson's man crush on Bismarck, right? I mean, there's this idea of what what, what called with Bismarck was top down socialism, right? Yeah. And and so there's a technocratic elite that just loves the idea of having all the power to arrange things, which is, I think is the spirit of a lot of the EU stuff that I was talking about. Vox.com. Yeah, but yeah, right. And um, but but you don't see the sort of uh, opinion. You call them panda huggers. Yeah, the left wing left wing pundits who gush or defend Russia. You don't see any of that sort of boosterism for China, or at least I don't. And I'm just wondering why, because you follow that world more than I do. Um, I think you do see some of it um, in the sense that whenever there's a sort of potential military escalation or regarding Taiwan or uh, the deployment of, you know, uh, the Sixth Fleet through the yeah. South China Sea, you'll see people on the left say this is this is provoking. This is, you know, but you're right. There is not a kind of deeper... Um, intellectual support for that. I don't I don't know why. Yeah. That's a good question. All right. Well, Jamie, thank you much for doing this. His book is called The End of the West. End of Europe. That's End of Europe. I'm sorry. I was side of the West. That's 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 when <laughs> when my book and your book mate. Um, and uh, and you can read his piece about George Soros in the in in tablet. We'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right, so uh, Jamie uh, has left the building and um, entered his very close by building. Yeah, he basically works like like a hundred yards from here or something like that. Did you know that the Brookings Institution is connected to this building by a tunnel? Uh, is it? Uh, no. That would not be entirely implausible to me, um, or implausible. Um, That's impossible. I was going to say, God, my brain just doesn't work. Um, Brookings is a degree-conferring institution. I think I did know that. You used to be able to get – they used to give PhDs. And I don't think they do it anymore, but um, AI is often thought about becoming like a like RAND and offering a PhD program. I think it's – I shouldn't probably say this on air, but I think it's a bad idea. But um, 
but it's an interesting one. Anyway, um, what'd you think of that conversation? It's too meandering for you? <laughs> You're, I feel like this, this critique of mine is starting to, to, uh, bother you that, that these, these shows are less disciplined than they could be. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm asking for constructive feedback and, you know. I mean, you got, it sounded, it seemed like you got to everything you wanted to talk to him about, but it was just unpredictable to me which thing would come when. No, that's fair. Because I didn't know, you know, I mean, I, I literally, listeners, I drove here from the Union League Club this morning. Have you ever been to the Union League Club in Philly? No, it is not. It is fantastic. It may be the coolest building in Philadelphia. And that's not like saying the best Oktoberfest in Orlando. I mean, it's like legit, really cool. And I, I, don't, I have friends. National Review has a good relationship with the Union League Club in New York. But this is this is the first one, and it's it's bananas cool. And they have a excellent bar slash cigar lounge downstairs, which obviously for reasons I don't need to dwell on. Yeah, is that named after you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but maybe one day. And one of the guys I had drinks with last night owns the rights to Atlas Shrugged. Oh, really? Yeah, which was kind of fascinating. Hmm. We talked about that for a while. So I think – so Atlas Shrugged is a bizarre and fascinating piece of work. But I think that it is potentially possible to make a good adaptation of it. Uh-huh. If, it if it would require some rewriting – Apparently, Ayn Rand wrote a priest character into the novel that she ended up discarding because she didn't think that he was realistic. So I, I sort of wonder what he was like. But it, it could be the story, like, on the on the face of it, if you ignore all the ph- philosophical stuff, which I know is like 75% of the book, it's sort of like, it's fun to think of it as just in the, in the pulpy tradition of 50s sci-fi because, like, the basic story is kind of that. Yeah. It's a sort of dystopian... There's like weird technology in it. It was written in fifty what fifty six. I think that's right. Um, so it is like of a piece with that era. So there's well, there's I think a good adaptation of like a miniseries or something. Well, that, that's the that's the thing. So he produced. I, I apologize for not remembering his name, although it would probably be best if I didn't mention it anyway. But he had produced the mo- the two of these movies that they had done. Yeah. And the thing he seemed to be saying the thinking now is that they want to do like an Amazon series, like 10 episodes. That way you could really sort of carry the narrative arc of the whole thing. Yeah. It was just, it was interesting. Other fun trivia is that, so they have a room with every Republican president ever because, you know, the Union League Club was, has this rich. What do you mean with every Republican president? Of, a portrait. Oh, okay. They have a cool portrait and um, sort of gallery of them. And the one Republican who's missing Calvin Coolidge, praise be upon him, uh, <laughs> because they lent it to Mike Pence, who has um, in his office portraits of every vice president who became president. Isn't that an interesting little that is interesting. tidbit? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but anyway, the Union League Club people were fantastic. It was a great crowd. We had 350 people. And I met with the NR fellows. We have this these regional fellow programs, which are great. If people out there are interested, you do like eight seminars. We can maybe link to it in the show notes. You do like eight seminars where people talk about different aspects of the conservative intellectual tradition. It's like a sort of a graduate course kind of thing. And But there's also cocktails and whatnot. And uh, so I met with those kids. I shouldn't say kids. They're actual grownups. But um, in Philly. 
at the Union Glee Club earlier in the night and, and as what is becoming a tradition around the country, they brought me a very nice bottle of scotch, and I really appreciate that. And I've actually taught a couple of these seminars on fusionism, and which brings me to uh, – I have a piece in the new issue of the magazine on fusionism, and maybe I'll drag Continetti's ass back in here and talk to him about it because for those who don't know, fusionism was sort of this defining – construct of American conservatism over the last 40 years. It's what I talked about a big chunk at the Philadelphia Society. And it's this basic idea that was put forward mostly by Frank Meyer that this tension between freedom and virtue is baked into Western civilization, but it's also the driving the driving coalitional principle of American conservatism. And it was this idea that a virtuous society must be a free society because freedom, because virtue not freely chosen isn't virtuous. You cannot compel virtue. And I make the case that as a pure philosophical argument, it kind of falls apart. But as an organizing principle or as a statement about an inherent tension in Western civilization, it's still incredibly useful and informative and interesting. But my real argument, which sort of touches on some of the stuff that Jamie and I were talking about, is that it is becoming increasingly irrelevant and being swamped by uh, populism, which no longer cares about figuring out where these trade-offs and these distinctions are. And we've basically had a populist takeover of, of the conservative movement, or at least most of the institutions of the conservative movement, with a few remnanty outliers around. Um, in other news... Uh, I could swear I saw on Twitter that someone named their baby after you, Jack. Is that apparently not? Oh, that's not accurate? exactly what happened. A listener just had a child. Uh, congratulations. And the child is named Jack. Because uh, they said they were inspired by you. After, so. And they've already played an episode of The Remnant to the baby, which is crucial. Well, they should have been doing that in the womb, yeah. frankly. Uh, which maybe they uh, maybe they did do that and they just didn't say. But uh, the child is actually named after his grandfather and not after me. But they said that if I mention this on the air, then I can be sort of bound up in his in his uh, namesake. So I don't know. I mean, the lore. Yeah, I mean, if you, dear dear listener, if you if you really think I'm worthy of that, which I don't think I am, but if you think that, then I, I obviously can't stop you from constructing your family heritage in my honor. <laughs> so, but thank you. I'm flattered either way. So it's funny. Um, I am the walrus. Kukukuchu. I am uh, not quite named after, but my, my name was inspired by the bl- black jazz trumpeter Jonah Jones. Oh. My parents saw him playing somewhere or that, that he was playing somewhere, and they were like, oh, Jonah, that's a great name. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and I really feel like I should like listen to more Jonah Jones just to cultivate that lore as well. Or learn how to play the trumpet. My brother played the trumpet. He was named Josh because that's more fitting, right, biblically. Um, oh, yeah. Um, but uh, it's funny being named Jonah like it used to be. No one else was named Jonah. That was just it. And like so you get wrapped up in your name. Like I'm sure you knew other Jacks. Yes. So like you wouldn't like think Jack is essential to your personality or your identity. But like Jonah for a moment – until I, I never met another Jonah until college. And before that, people could say, well, that's a Jonah thing to do or whatever. And it would be obvious they were talking about me because no one else was named Jonah. Now, if you're on playgrounds in New York or in D.C., 
which I don't do as much as I used to. <laughs> but, um, right, nice save there. <laughs> uh, you can hear like moms and nannies shouting Jonah all over the place, and it makes me whip around. Well, are they shouting it at you <laughs> because you're, you're there? <laughs> Stranger danger. Um, and uh, Get away from my child, Jonah. But I remember when I was a kid, I would, every now and then I would meet other kids who grew up around boats, and they would ask, why would your parents do that to you? Because there's a naval sort of nautical tradition to say Jonah is cursed. Uh-huh. Right? That you're, oh, we must have a Jonah on board. Um, and it was just sort of, and it just was always sort of weird to me. I don't know why I'm talking about this. It's mostly because I'm just very, very tired. I'd name, if I were, if I end up uh, having children in the vicinity of, uh, and raising them in the vicinity of a port, I will name my, I will name one of them Ahab. Instead oh, of Jonah. That would work, yeah. And then hopefully he'll be consumed his whole life by one singular vengeance. That'll be good. Um, so uh, I've been thinking about future podcastery, right? So this is the last podcast before Thanksgiving. We want to say Thanksgiving to all of our listeners and all that. We'll get to all that in a second. But we also do want to up the frequency, and that's going to require some more planning. So um, – but I did have – so if you have ideas for future podcasts, future guests, conversations, topics, I had one idea that I wanted to do, which Jamie kind of reminded me of. I want to do like an entire podcast on – either with a guest or just solo on the history of the labels right and left, what they mean, where they come from, how they've changed. I think uh, it'd be kind of fun. I don't want to do like formal like lecture stuff where I revisit weird topics and that kind of stuff. But it'd be fun to take a certain idea, sort of like we did with homelessness, but take weird standalone ideas or concepts. Um, I used to have this idea of hosting a TV show. I actually wrote a proposal for it 20 years ago called What's the Big Idea, where you would take some current controversy and trace its intellectual roots going all the way back. And I'd like to do a little bit more of that kind of stuff as we go forward. That's what you wanted this show to be from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's right. When I was talking to NPR about doing a show, that was sort of what I had pitched, but... There was too much produce, production work to do it like as the way the NPR crowd would want it. And, but I like – the more of that kind of stuff we can do, it's kind of evergreen, right? The history of right and left coming out of the French Estates General does not change. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't – no spoilers. Yeah, I apologize. So that's right. So um, topics like that, if people want to send us emails or talk to us on – talk to our bot account on Twitter, that would be great. And then I had an idea that I think may – send you on a three-state killing spree? Um, another one? <laughs> um, a, uh, um, probably for charity, a podcast-a-thon where you do like like the old, like Jerry Lewis, literally a 24-hour, no interruptions podcast for charity. Um, we can't book that, this studio for that long. If we planned it out far enough in advance. Maybe. Couldn't do it more than a work day, at least. Why? Well, because the, it requires unseen technical support that you don't, that neither of us knows about. Well, all right. Maybe so. But it's worth talking – well, I don't even know if it's worth talking about it. But I thought it would be kind Clearly, of, I don't think so. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, my my yeah. resentment for this idea is already becoming apparent. This is, this is one of the classic examples of staff managing – management – where all of a sudden you just start inventing reasons why I can't do things. Uh, I used to do it to Ben Wattenberg all the time. So, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. These are also legitimate reasons. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not inventing them. But they are surmountable. They are surmountable. Um, I heard on the drive-in that Peter Siegel, I think it's his name, the guy from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, 
uh, on NPR, uh, has a book out about running. And they, were, they did a whole uh, show about him talking about running. I thought I should let, let you know that. Anyway, I want to thank um, all you guys for putting up with my hungover banter here. Um, I know it was not exactly uh, fascinating. Now, there's a podcast uh, theme, um, hungover banter. I have some candidates who could come on for that. <laughs> um, and uh, we are almost, not quite, but almost in, in, in spitting distance of 3,000 reviews on iTunes. So if you can review it, that would be great. If you could review it positively, that would be even better. <laughs> if you could subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You know, I, I don't know why. I li- wherever you get your podcast, because, like, I don't know what Stitcher is, you know. And I use Podcruncher. I don't know if that counts as, like, a thing. Probably, yeah. It's all, all the all the, all the the stats matriculate somewhere. Um, and uh, I want everybody to have a great Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday. You know, it's a pre-founding. It's the most nationalist holiday. It's just the right amount of nationalism. It's giving thanks to God, to soil, to country, to fo- for your food, to your friends, your family. It's very hard to commercialize, and it's at my favorite time of year, which is the fall. Um, and so I'm thankful for all, the guy, all of you listeners for sticking with us. I get great feedback when I'm on the road. That's in part selection bias because all the people who hate me don't come out to say hello. But um, and I want to thank Jack for all the hard work he's done here. And we will uh, – is there anything else we need to announce or talk about? Uh, I can tell I just don't want to go. What? You can tell I just don't want to go. <laughs> so much work to do when I get out of here. I can't think of anything. All right. Um, and we're not going to start the podcast-a-thon now. All right. I take your hint. Anyway, so thanks to everybody, and I will see you next week. No, you want this podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.